heard that song for the first time uh, yesterday when they were practicing. I thought, my goodness, it's the perfect song for today. And it sounds like Joshua, that song it was written for him. Um, could you tilt in so you're leaning down? That's the line that stood out from that song for me. Could you, could you tilt in so you're leaning down? That's the cry of that person who's obviously in the desperate place and has looked at the cross and figured it's too high and instead asked for a God that could, could tilt and lean down. Um, I guess another way to ask that question is to think of it this way. If God had just a few brief uh, moments to interact with his people, um, with what would he lead? Well, if he could just come with one portion, one element of his character, what would be his tilt? What, how would he lean? And, and and people have talked about this for years, who God, who God is. And, um, you know, the, the original, some of the original thinkers in, in Christianity were really influenced by Greek thinking. And so they had sort of these omnis or these alls that they considered. And, and I'm not saying I disagree with them, but I'm not sure that they really shape up that tilt, or at least the tilt that I think that, would, that, that works best for people today. Um, they had these, you know, like omni, like omnipotent, like... God was unbounded in his strength and his might. And there was a, actually going back behind the Greeks, there was this word God, all, you know, almighty. Every time you look in the Bible and you see the word almighty, that is, you know, saying God is omnipotent. He's unbounded in his power and his strength. And he is capable of doing anything, anytime, place, anywhere that he wants. He's omnipotent. And they said that he was omniscient. And by that they meant that he was all seen and that he knew all he was sort of a, lid, a lidless eye. Nothing escaped. No attention. No, no detail escaped his attention. He could see everything. He knew everything. There was nothing that was hidden from him. He was wise beyond measure. And that he was, um, he was omnipresent. And unlike us, he wasn't bound. He, wasn't, he doesn't live on a, a timeline and a space and time. But he sort of lives above a line if that's the track of our lives. And and he lives both on the line and above the line and below the line, I guess, all around it. And in some way, he's, he's beyond time and space. And yet, he's perfect in every dimension and, and whole in every, in every time and place where he enters. And, and people said that he was pure and holy. I don't really have an omni for that. But that he was, in, in no way was there any blemish in him. And that he was unmarked. And that his, in everything that he did, he was pure. And um, like I said, I, I don't know that those, I'm not saying that those are wrong, but, but I, I want to ask if I really made a mess of things in my life, if those are the things I, need, I really want God when it comes to me to lead with. Is that, is that what he's going to put on his card when he slips it in front of me? God who's omnipotent, God who's omnipresent, God who's omniscient, God who's holy and pure. Who better to answer that question than this guy that um, Steve introduced earlier, this prophet named Micah, who lived about 2,700 years ago in a backwater time and place, and he was sort of a backwater prophet. Um, he was sort of a common, he wrote in a, to common people, um, spoke to people that were on pinnacles, but he himself was a common person, I think is what I meant to say. Um, his, his name Micah means, who is like Yahweh? Yahweh is that Hebrew word for God. So who is like God? And so he takes in his words that he spoke, he was a prophet, which means God put God's own words into his, into his mouth and, and Micah spoke them and recorded them. And he told us who God was like. He told us how God tilts towards us when he comes. 
And so we're going to look at his words in the second chapter of Micah, and we're going to try to answer this question, how is it that God tilts towards us? You know, will he lean down? And he opens in, a, in Micah, the first few verses of Micah 2, 1 through 3, with some pretty tough tilt, I'd say. And it goes like this. He says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and they seize them, and houses and they take them. They defraud a man of his home and a fellow man of his inheritance. Therefore the Lord says, I am planning a disaster against his people, this people, from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. And so in his opening words, he talks about plans. And his, 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 his chapter is going to break down three ways very easily. It's going to break down into plans, and it's going to break down uh, into prophets, and then he's going to talk about pastors of all things. So in this opening segment, he talks about plans, and he breaks them very clearly into the plans of evil people and the plans of God. And it's, it, as hard as it is for us to admit, or as, uh, as much as it makes us uncomfortable, what's clear here is that he's saying that there are people that plot to do evil. That, 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 that we plot, that people take advantage of other people, that they wait for a moment in time which is best for them to do that, um, that they do it because they can, and they do it to steal. We do it to steal in order and to defraud. And because the, we, there is this self-dependence that people have which is really you know malice God says I have some plans as well and what my plans look like is that your plans will not succeed in fact my plans are to fight you at every corner and to put an end to it and um, and that's pretty hard um, that, that's a very hard thing to realize about that about God he calls them his people but he's willing to stop them um, and he's telling them as hard as this is to hear, that um, he will stop at no end. He, he will go to no end to stop them. In fact, he is willing to go to the level of, uh, of dissolving their land, the people in the land, send the people out of the land, send them into exile, and send them in to be slaves in other countries if that's what it takes. I mean, that's, that's how he opposes, how strongly he opposes them. Now, they have plans, but what we can see at the end of this is that he says that he opposes them because they're proud. You will no longer walk proudly. And this is, a, this is bad news for a lot of people. This is probably the worst news, that, that God opposes the proud. That's really what gets us in trouble. If you want to get in good with God, all you need is need. But most of us don't have it because our need, frankly, is full of our own damnable good works. We're proud people. We have our own plans. And so, um, so he's going to oppose those. You could take from this opening section that God's tilt is about justice, for sure, and it's pretty tough. And then Micah goes on, we're going to look a bit further, and he starts talking about prophets, the first plans, and he talks about prophets. And uh, I'm just going to take one verse from this section because I think it's really uh, funny. It's very, it's actually sarcastic, so um, I kind of like that about God. Um, and he says this in, in Micah 2.11, he says, If a liar and a deceiver comes to these people and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for these people. Why not? Um, and really what he's saying is that, you know, if somebody comes and tickles your ear, if come, somebody comes and says, just the thing that you want to hear, if some expert comes along and really doesn't stand up to you, that you'll go after him. And, and if he's good enough, or she's good enough, you'll go after him in mass. You'll go after him sort of like a mob. Micah uh, spoke these words, these ancient Hebrews, um, 
on behalf of their tilting God. This kind of combination of plans of men and when these words, these false, false prophets came to them at a time when on the outside, you know, if you looked at them materially, they were prosperous. There wasn't a lot of bad, there weren't a lot of things going wrong. They, they, things were very good for them. But, but behind the scenes, what was happening was that they were declining spiritually. Their relationship with, with God had been undermined because they were sort of going after, after other gods. Um, there were uh, competitors, rival states that were rising up, particularly in the north to them, a country called Assyria, which was becoming a huge economic and military power, and they were ignoring that. Um, they were not providing justice to the least of their citizens or to the, uh, the foreigners that were in their, in their borders, and, and God opposed them for that. Um, and they lacked the courage to see it for what it was and to repent. We thought about this as a teaching team. Some of us are on the teaching team here and, and tried to figure out how to describe this mess, this sort of mess that occurs when things look good on the outside, but they're crumbling underneath. And uh, we chose a, a very technical phrase um, that we decided to use because we thought it might sort of jar some things for you and you would remember it. And the phrase, the very technical phrase we decided is it's a crap mountain. They created a crap mountain, just a mountain of crap. It was just tang- it's just a mess, not something that's easily solved. Nobody knew where to begin. Nobody knew where it would end. And uh, like I said, God's plan was for it to end with them going into exile. That's how he would solve it. Um, not that any of those things I described had in any way any sort of reflection in this age, in this time. So is the primary tilt of God then, you know, anger, sarcasm, justice? For sure, that's what he seems to be opening with, but he's going to change the direction here a little bit. And so what I think the way I want to, I'm going to sort of say is he's sort of coming in those things, but it's, it's, like a, it's like a fist in a velvet glove. You know, if you watch The Office, Dwight Schrute a couple weeks ago uh, said that uh, in, a, in a perfect world, he would have ten fingers on his left hand and he could do everything with his left hand and his, his right hand would have no fingers and he could just use his fist, fist to punch people. So um, that's Dwight Schrute's vision of the world. Doesn't really have anything to do with today. Um, okay, so Micah went further from here. He doesn't just leave us there. God rarely leaves us there, um, and he changes the scope and the talk. And he goes and he starts to talk from plans and from prophets. And he starts to talk about of all things pastures, places out under the stars populated by sheep and shepherds. And and here when you hear this, you know sheep stand for people and shepherds stand for God. That's that's the correlation here. It's pretty easy. So Micah, near the end of this chapter, or at the end of the chapter, verses 12 through 13, goes this way. He says, I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in a pasture. In its pasture, The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go out before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass before, through before them the Lord at their head. To, to understand this, the histor- Steve Brayfield and I were talking in between, the historical context is everything. And that's why this is, we're calling the series, incompletely foreign, because even though these themes sort of resonate with us, we lack the historical reference to really know what's going on. So I'm going to talk a little about, uh, allow me to talk a little about sheep and shepherd, and, and you'll start to see how people and God work in that. Here's what you need to know about sheep. These are their characteristics. They're dirty, 
uh, they're prone to disease, they're remarkably vulnerable, um, they're anxious, and they, ha- and they have a herd mentality. They sort of adore something and they'll go after it, or if they're scared, they'll run from it. But when one goes, everybody sort of goes with that, that other sheep. And so um, left to their own, I think sheep uh, have a pretty short life and a, probably a pretty miserable one as that goes. Um, so they're, they're dirty. They live outside. And uh, if, if they aren't cared for, and you've seen, like, like when you're a kid, you remember, like, you'd see sheep and you'd be like, I thought sheep were white, but every sheep I've ever seen is just a, a gray, nasty color. Um, there's stuff in them. They just, they just, they just look nasty. And I'm, I'm, I can imagine what they smell like, but I've, I've never gotten that close. Um, they're prone to disease. Uh, sheep apparently have a skin which is uh, prone to getting disease and, and open, and they get sores, and it's all in it's. They're out there in the wild where there's burrs and, you know, and all kinds of things. And so uh, sheep are prone to disease. Um, they get disease like in their, their hoofs. They have to be constantly checked. And there they get, they get some nasty stuff going on there as well. Probably like some of your guys' uh, toes are. So something like that. Um, they are anxious creatures. Not, you know, I, I know a little bit about goats because goats are cousins to sheep. And uh, goats, goats are kind of funny. Um, they don't seem to be anxious about anything. Goats sort of have a situation under control. Um, but sheep uh, don't. They're very nervous. They're scattered and uh, constantly, uh, constantly looking for something to run from. I wrote down that they, they, they're, they, this goes together. They're sort of prone to adoration. So once they love their, their shepherd, they will follow their shepherd almost anywhere. This is kind of, uh, this, is, this has a, a, a flip side. The flip side is that um, when one sheep goes into panic, they all go into panic. So they are followers. They're, they're prone to follow. That's sheep. They're, they're remarkable. Um, shepherds, on the other hand, uh, you know, if you only have this, we noticed this, you know, if you, ha- if you have a sheep, you don't need a shepherd. But when you have sheeps, uh, you need a shepherd. And so there's something about the plural there. Uh, sheep need shepherds. Now, look, here's the thing about shepherds. They have a limited number of tools. In that day, I'm sure they have more now, but in that day they had limited number of tools. They had like a slingshot, uh, like David had. Um, they probably got like a rod, you know, and they got which is like a club, and they got a, they got a staff, and they got their voice. So here's how they use them. The um, from the time, excuse me, they have one other thing. They have a knife. The knife is a, a, is, a is an unusual tool. Um, I'm sure it could get used for a lot of different things, but one of the things it was used for, for is that when a, a ewe was was born or when it was purchased. Um, you know, to me, sheep all look alike. Uh, side story: um, my one, my, my boss was uh, he's a Latin guy, and a group of them were in China um, when the country first started opening, and they were uh, they were, had their tra- their translators there. And after about towards the end of the week, they realized that the uh, that the translators had trouble keeping them straight one from the other, and they sort of asked them what was going on, and, and the translator said, "Well, you know, all you Latins look the same. How could we tell the difference?" Um, Sheep all look sort of the same, and at least the people who aren't sheep. I'm sure they can tell the difference, but it's hard for a human eye to tell the difference. So when a sheep is born, what a shepherd does, what a shepherd would do in that time is he would take a knife and he would cut a notch into the ear of the sheep, into the ewe, in a way that was very unique. It was his mark. It was a sort of brand. You can't really brand a sheep because of all the wool. So he'd put that notch in there, and that way he would know who, who were his when they would come back to pen. So if sheep got mixed up, they could separate them by the ear. Uh, sheep are forgiving animals, apparently, and forget that. And so um, they become endeared to the voice of the shepherd. 
And so um, the shepherd can call the sheep, and, and for the most part, the sheep respond. The shepherd know the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, and they follow. Um, he can use that as a calling way when a sheep would start to wander off. Um, he could yell at them, various sounds, clicks, buzzes, and, and sheep know those things, and they and they return or they back off from where they're going. When when a sheep doesn't like uh, respond to the voice, they've got a they've got a rod, which is really just a club with a bulbous end. Now they, they would make this out of a piece of wood with a that had like a root on the bottom, and they would carve that down so it'd be nice and smooth. But basically, it was a club. He used, the shepherd used that club in a couple different ways. He swung it a couple different ways. If you know the story about David, King David, he was called a shepherd king because he was a shepherd before he was king of Israel. And um, there's some stories in there about how he killed a lion and he killed a bear. And so we can imagine that um, he swung the club with, with fierceness to destroy an enemy. So that's one way a shepherd swings. For his enemy, the shepherd swings the club, swings the club with fierceness and with the intention of damage. But for a sheep, he never he never swings a club that way. For a, a sheep, the, the club sort of, or the rod really represents an extension of his of his strength. And so if a, a sheep was wandering off, you know, he could give it a whirl. And they and the, from what I read, apparently, if you hit a sheep once, he'll remember. And from then on, you just sort of throw it in his direction, and he knows, whoa, uh, club, not good. Going, I'm headed back. And... Um, That sounds, in some ways, like us, right? Um, another thing that the way this rod got used, and this is very interesting because our tendency, and I'll get this. Little, oh, I'll leave that off for now. This this club, he used this club another way. When they would come in at night, and they would come in from the field, and they would be going into the pen. You know, if you had a lot of sheep, you need to count them, make sure he didn't leave any out there. Because if he left one out, he would put all of them into the pen, and he would go back out himself to find the one that was lost, and he would bring it back. And so um, he would count them as they came in. But the way he counted them, as he stood there or sat there, and as he, they came in, they would come under the rod. And it was really a, a mark of humility, right? Because this could, thing could be used to, to slug them, but it wasn't. As they would come under, he would tap them, but he would also take the, the rod and he would use it to part their, their fur and to look and see if that skin had gotten cut or if there was anything disease that was going on. It was really an instrument of force, but it was used in a tender, loving way. And if you found something... That was was there. That was uh, that was wrong. He would take out a bomb. He would apply that, and it was sort of a healing thing. So that's how he used his rod. He had a staff, and, and really just think of a long stick. It's just what it sounds like. And 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 again, it was something that he could hurl a great distance, usually for enemies, usually for enemies. And if a sheep was kind of headed the wrong way, and he was you know within six feet or five feet, you could reach out there and tap him and get him going the right way. So those were really his tools. He had one other tool. Um, he had his character. So they're, they're both good, there's both good shepherds and there's bad shepherds. And you can sort of tell the good shepherds from the bad shepherds by the condition of their sheep and by the condition of their pastures. And so, a, a, so good shepherds were the ones that were diligent, that really gave of themselves and that really paid attention to the conditions of the, sh- of the sheep day by day and hour by hour and, and did whatever the sheep needed for those sheep. Okay. Sheep and shepherds. Let's go. Uh, let's go on. Let's go. Let's go on to this this next twist. I said that sheep equal people and shepherds equal God. So let's let's talk about people. Okay. Here here are the descriptions I have of people. Here, elements are elements. They're dirty. They're diseased. Remarkably vulnerable. Prone to anxiety. They have a herd mentality. 
There are people who like the door. And even worse than a sheep, they're very proud. We, we may not have schemed as evilly as the people that Micah described, but, but we have built our own crap mountains. That's for sure. We have worked our way into places where we really can't get out. And usually it's because of this thing called pride, which really, would, you know, the opposite of faith is not, is not fear. It's self-dependence. And when we plan and when we scheme, we create messes. Our normal response is just to work harder and harder and harder. Um, Tim Keller says, I'm going to paraphrase this, but he says something that's really I read recently said it's really good. He said, you know, the nature of, a, the nature of people is that... Um, we want so badly. Um, it, we, we, we want things so badly. I'm going to go backwards. I'm going to go back to Jess. I'm just remembering this. Jess, earlier when she was talking, she said um, she said this. She said that... Um, where have I got it here? I wrote it down in the flash. We want to be on the right side of acceptability. Right? Connect that with Killer, who says that anything that gives us acceptance, we are such adoring people, we will worship it. When something gives us love, it gives us power, it gives us money, it gives us whatever it is that we want and that we desire, we are such, have such a herd mentality and are such adorers that we will worship the thing. And we will make plans, our own plans, to get more of it. And that's how we've made these sort of crap mountains in our lives. So God tilts towards us. And what does he tilt towards us with? He tilts towards us with humility. And compassion. Um, the, the writer Mark, who wrote of Jesus, um, said of him as he was coming off, coming off a boat one day, he said, When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many, many things. His, uh, Jesus' closest, one of his closest friends, John, uh, and who was also a biographer of Jesus, wrote these words about him. He said, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What part of his character will God tilt towards us with? He will tilt to us first in his humility and his gentleness. Jesus said of himself, he said, Learn from me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take, your yoke upon, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gem, gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that seems to me, that's, that is like a radioactive verse for me, and, and I kind of melt it down to learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Here's why we need this. If, I got a mountain, if I've got a crap mountain going, and I've had more than my share and God comes to me in power, my normal response is fear. That's why when the, when the angels appeared to the, to, the, to the shepherds, what did they tell them? Be not afraid. It is our tendency to defend, to be afraid when God comes. And we, we are, we, if God comes in power, if he comes in force, we are going to fear. And in and, and my own experience, you know, my, my best repentance and the most life-changing, the, most, the things that really, I wouldn't say just repentance, but the things that really deepen my appreciation in my, my relationship with God is when he comes to me in tenderness and kindness. I have sort of an odd example of that, but I didn't have a lot of time to prepare for this week, and I was on for this week, and I was like, okay, this God will be God of my schedule. It will be okay. 
and I sort of had some time yesterday. I thought I would block out where I was traveling. I thought I'll just, I'll just prepare during that time. And as I was traveling and I sat down in a seat, uh, somebody sat down next to me, and I realized in the first five minutes of that conversation that, oh, my goodness, this is like one of those conversations I'm supposed to have with this person, and I am not going to do one bit of preparation. And, oh, boy. And so um, did that. And then got home and had just a couple hours to think before we were getting ready to go back out. And as I sat down and I opened up my computer, I just felt the words come out of me. And I really thought, wow. I didn't, I, what I did not think is, wow, you're smart. What I thought was, what I heard God say was, I took care of it. I mean, it's in his tenderness, in his gentleness, in his kindness that we hear him, that we experience him. And then when he leans into us and says, with that gentleness, and says, you're not all that. There's some place. I, I'm going to apply the rod here. We can hear that. If he comes with the rod and comes to the swinging, it's going to be pretty tough to hear him. Um, so that's why we need this. Uh, he switches. I'm going to switch this from pastures and talk about pastures and saying that they represent the world that we see, the world around us. And this is a unique, I thought just such a unique thing that came alive for me this, looking at this time that I've never really got before. And it's just this. You know, when sheep, okay, sheep go out and they eat, and they drink, and they're led around, and they rest. They, they're really good at rest, apparently. Um, and, you know, what do they leave? Well, you know, they leave crap. I mean, that's what they do. They just leave dung. That's, that they eat, and they rest, and, and stuff happens after that. And a good shepherd, this, is just, this was just amazing to me, because it plays against our other image. You know, what a good shepherd does is, he, first of all, he, he moves them after they've eaten to a place where, so when they defecate, it won't pollute their water or their resting place. And he moves them to, a, and, and, he, and he sends them into eating places where they'll eat the, the weeds and the things that are noxious before, for, before they get too large or, or the, the birds. And what comes out, then he takes them up the hill and they deposit it at the top of these hills. This is what a Mid- Middle Eastern shepherd would have done at that time. And on those hills, there's rocks because the soil is washed away. But if enough sheep dung is deposited up there that becomes pasture as well and another thing that happens is the rains come the 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 nutrition from that flows out down the hill and 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 gives nurture to the entire pasture and so it, it isn't the, the 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 play the interplay between the the sheep and the shepherds ends up benefiting the pasture around them and, and so it follows for that we should ask you know and this, this here is what is it that we're leaving as a community we are people. We are sheep. He's our shepherd. He's our God. What is, what is it that we're leaving? And I wrote down a few things that are just really encouraging to me. The first is our kids. Um, I'm going to see if I can get these numbers right. Um, but, but you are fertile people. Um, we had 34 infants born in our community last year. And 28 the year before that. And... Um, I, I'm so impressed with Shannon Estes' vision for Kids Warehouse that Kids Warehouse is not about entertainment. Um, we are likely not going to have the largest and most exciting video jungle gym in any church in Charlotte. But what we will absolutely commit to you is that we will make every effort to, to, to give your children nurture so that as they grow up, they will first know Christ themselves and secondly, that when they go into their own generation, they will take this message and they will take it fresh and new for their own generation. That's what we're doing. That's what Kids Warehouse is about. Making fully formed followers of Jesus of your children. 
without getting over-emotional, I will tell you, I've seen one family do that here from the very beginning. That's the Morgan, the Morgan family. You know, and the proof of that is Greer over here. She's not perfect. But you can look at her, and you can look at Bill and Roxanne, and you can say, that's our pasture. And that's, and that's what we're going to give to you. That's what Warehouse is going to do. We're going to change the world with our children. Our children will be fully built followers of Jesus. Second one is this. This is an odd thing, but it's this building, our pasture. When we uh, first saw this building, it came at a time when we were in a very difficult moment. Um, and for whatever reason, we felt led to try to find a more permanent place, a more permanent pasture. And we came here and we looked. And it was a rat hole. Literally. There were rats and there were holes. And there were rats going in out of the hole, so it was sort of a rat hole. And, um, and we stood here and... Um, we prayed, and we heard, possess it. And, and truthfully, not everybody was on board with us, um, but over time, they were. Now, when you give your money to the, the weekly basket that comes by, that goes into a thing called the general fund. And what the general fund is, it's just it's a fund for general use. It goes for things like keeping the lights on or paying the, the mortgage on this building. It doesn't seem very exciting, but I'm not sure that eating grass and producing whatever it is that sheep produce, crap, is all that exciting either. It's mundane. It's life. But here's why this building is incredible. All the stuff that goes on here on Sunday morning, that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Last week, we got to host the, uh, the toy store here. We partnered with other churches in town, and we got to host it. And I'm excited because... The reality is, you know, this church could be anywhere. We could be in any neighborhood we wanted to be. We can put this anywhere. But God calls us to this neighborhood. It seems strategic to me for a thing like the toy store. So what happened was that um, 8,400, over 8,400 toys were donated for the toy store by our church and by others. Those toys were instead, in turn, sold to 600 customers, folks that, that likely would not have had enough money to purchase toys for their kids for Christmas. It wasn't a handout. It wasn't a freebie. They made. They, they bought the toys at discounted prices, which helps to preserve their dignity and, 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 and really set the right pattern of things for their lives in the future instead of just pure charity. They paid $32,000 for those toys, those 600 customers. That $32,000 in turn, in turn will be used for scholarships for a, a local, a neighborhood CMS student that's going to graduate from high school and for scholarships for kids to attend uh, summer camp. That's our pasture. We accomplish that simply by following the shepherd. That's it. Sheep, people, shepherds, God. Pasture, our lives. It's Christmas. It's not, it's not lost on me entirely that we're talking about sheep and shepherds. And Of course, it's Christmas. And, and I just have to say that in all your rushing around, it's worth taking a moment just to remember that Jesus came as the most, in the most humble form possible. That he was the king of the, of, of the universe. And he chose to lay that down and really come to, to a, a time that is nothing like our own. And come to a place that was really just a backwater in that time. And he came in the most humble form he could. And he was born into a stable. And just to kind of ruin those little images, the images you have of a manger being a little thing with, okay, a manger was a feeding trough. 
He was laid in a feeding trough. I'm sure his mother cleaned it very well, but he was laid in a, in a, in a trough. He, he laid everything down so he could conquer everything. We need to hear that humility is the way through our crap mountain because our tendency is to use our own strength. We're good at strength. We're good at smarts. We're good at looks. We're not good at humility. The gospel is not that the good are in and the bad are out. The gospel is that the humble are in and the proud are out. You will have to lean on God for humility like no other element that you have because it does not come naturally. And if you do, like Jesus, you will conquer darkness. And you will, you will see those things come down in your life. Count it a blessing that God smashed all your plans. Because if you had exceeded in yours, you would never have known this love. That's Christmas. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for Warehouse. Thank you that, uh, as C.S. Lewis says, that you stooped to conquer us. We pray that you will increase our community in humility and that we will truly live as your sheep. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Now it's uh, our chance to give to that very famous...